Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. This is the Ubuntu Podcast. Hello, everyone. Hope you all are doing well whenever and wherever you are listening to this. My name is David. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's Natty. Hey, everyone. This is Hanok. Yes, and we are the host, the co-host of the Ubuntu podcast, where our mission is to bring change-driven, radical, informative, thought-provoking, beautiful conversation about Africa and its diaspora to the forefront, exploring contemporary issues that define our lives and define our times. And we're so excited to be in our second season, bringing you some incredible conversations. We really want to start the season off with some incredible people and really get you to be able to hear from them um, as they really bring center all of the things that are really important for us to think and to know about. And so I am personally super excited, right, to have our guests for today. We are going to be having a roundtable conversation, um, for lack of a better word, because it's virtual, (laughs) but we're going to be having a dynamic conversation over a two-part episode. So this is part one of a two-part episode all about Black organizers in the time of COVID and post-George Floyd. And as you know, for those who are in the U.S., it's an incredibly significant time because of the ending of our election, the waiting period between that and the inauguration of hopefully 46th president-elect Joe Biden. And so this is just an incredible time in the air to be really talking about Black lives, to be talking about their contribution to the political landscape, you know, and to also be talking about, more importantly, what is the impact of all of this work, of all this, all these years' events on the African diaspora worldwide on the continent. And so we're going to hear from some really amazing people today who have been extremely diligent in preserving Black lives through the art and science of community organizing of grassroots-led movements as an important tool and strategy for power building. So I am looking forward to turning the mic over. I know we're all excited, right? Um, And just having our guests begin to share the important things that they've come to share with us today. So with all that being said, I want to go ahead and get into it. Let's get started. Thank you so much to our guests who are here, who are gracing our podcast with your brilliance. I will start that and say your brilliance. And on this episode specifically, we're going to be highlighting two of these guests. Um, so I want you to go ahead, my sisters, my queens, and just give a quick introduction about yourself. Okay, I'll go first. Um, so my name is Rajay Branch. I am from South Central Los Angeles uh, in California. It's not sunny California today. It's raining. Um, But the work that I do, so I work in higher education for uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama's Reach Higher Initiative. And with that, I'm working with lots of students, helping them get into college. But also I am an organizer with Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And more recently, we have been engaged politically uh, with the DA's race and uh, just this election. It's been a big year for California. Um, We've had a huge ballot. And so we've been working with families, um, those who have lost loved ones um, by police violence and also just white supremacy as well. And uh, most people know us by being in the streets, but we do a lot of other work as well. 
Um, let's try following that. <laughs> um, thank you so much again for, for having us here. Uh, my name is Dima Mahmoud. I am Nubian from Sudan. I do everything I know how to do to bring truth to this world, um, to our people predominantly. Um, what movements do I represent? Do you have time? Because there's actually a list of, of, <laughs> of movements. Uh, Give it all to us. Seriously. Um, I'll focus on Black November because we're in November, which has been declared Black November, and the 22nd of November declared the Global Day of Action for the Black Lives Movement, the Global Black Lives Movement. And the goal there is to bridge all the efforts uh, from Africa and her rising, thriving um, diaspora to all elements and facets of the empowerment and advancement of people of African ancestry. So in that or part of that is we are Africa rising, is Black Lives Matter, is NSARS, is Congo is bleeding, is Zimbabwean Lives Matter, is Justice for Brianna Taylor, is Keep Eyes on Sudan, is uh, Tanzania Decides 2020, is Am I Next from South Africa to every corner in the US and around the world? Am I Next being us as people of African ancestry? I think I'll leave it as that and we'll be delving uh, more and more into um, into all that this entails as part of the conversation, I am sure. Great. Yeah, no, that was um, just really insightful to hear about all the different movements that are, that are going on um, both locally and, and internationally. And, you know, something that I'm just curious about, and I'll start with you, Dima, on this one, is what, what would you say are the biggest challenges that are faced by the constituency of Black African people that you serve in this particular moment? Um, and what are the unique opportunities as well? Hi. Okay. Um, Our biggest challenge, in my opinion, um, as people of African ancestry, is recognizing that our biggest challenge is within, is recognizing that we are not just fighting one, um, one angle or one aspect. We are not just fighting racism. We're not just fighting corruption, we're not just fighting supremacy, we're not just fighting misogyny. We are fighting it all. We have been robbed of collective justice. Collectively, as people of African ancestry, we have been robbed of experiencing the meaning of justice, whether individually or collectively. And, and because of that, and as a result of that, we become complacent in accepting all kinds of ludicrous justifications to compartmentalizing justice, which in turn compartmentalizes peace, which in turn shackle, shackles us from, from, from moving forward or reaching any form of potential. Mm. Um, the opportunities is that this global Black Lives Movement is, in every single meaning of what I'm about to say, a revolution of consciousness. And there is an increasing realization that the justice, that this revolution, that this global movement is calling for is very, very much like karma. 
it is only scaring those who are trying to stop it. Dima, you're about to make me cry. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. Tr- no, and I don't usually get emotional on things like this, but truthfully, it is a revolution of consciousness. I often tell my own story about how I got involved in the movement. And I say it was because the summer before I started college, I was pulled in and just like sucked into George Zimmerman's case. And the night that he was acquitted, I felt ill, like physically ill. And I knew then like something wasn't right. And we like, I couldn't do this anymore. Right. I thought I'd become an attorney, (laughs) a civil rights lawyer and, you know, work my way through it that way. But we saw it happen again and again, whether it was Mike Brown or Eric Garner. And then with this last summer, which I've referred to as a bloody summer, um, not just on a national or global scale, but especially at home in Los Angeles. So many people have been murdered by police in Los Angeles this past summer. Um, in addition to the pandemic, folks could not turn away anymore, right? There was nothing to distract them. And so it is sort of this upheaval, this revolution of consciousness. Folks are coming back to themselves and opening their eyes at the same time to what's happening. And so, like you said, that does give room for opportunity. And I, from a Black Lives Matter perspective, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles perspective, our focus is white supremacy through state-sanctioned violence, through abuse from the police. But we know that white supremacy rears its head in multiple ways, whether that's our education system, students not receiving the resources that they need, and during the pandemic, only for that to even rise more so to the surface with like this huge technology gap. We see it in healthcare, especially women giving birth, right? Knowing that the death rate is absolutely ridiculous. I think it's almost 38 times for Black women um, who are likely to die giving birth. We see it in voter suppression most recently, right? Which has folks on edge as we wait election results. Um, We see it in houselessness for Los Angeles to be a place of extreme wealth in California, which is supposed to be considered a liberal state, yet we have one of the worst houseless crises in the United States. Um, And so when you talk about it being a revolution of conscience, I took, I wrote that down. I took note of that I think about my own story and how I came to this place. And then I think about how my family by nature of me has also recognized what's happening and how through black lives matter, we have been able to help raise the consciousness, the critical consciousness of the globe at this point, because this is one of the largest social justice movements in history. And so I get emotional thinking about that because it's directly, it's personal for me too. Thank you both. 
everything you've been saying is so necessary. And I really want to um, take the conversation and center what has been happening in terms of widespread recognition around community organizing. Black grassroots led movements have really taken on a new level of um, acknowledgement, a new level of power, a new level of popularity, really, um, especially as it relates to the African diaspora. And you two are trained organizers. This is a method that you're both very familiar with. So I want to hear from you. Why do you believe that community organizing is such an effective tool for protecting Black lives and Black futures? And what other tools might there be as well that we can use in complementing community organizing? I'll take that. I'll add, I'll add to what Rajay was saying to all the different faces of white supremacy and, and racism that you are working with through your organizing. And yes, it absolutely is in every single facet which is why there needs to be a call, a deliberate call from all of us and a recognition by all of us, which is uh, the petition I, I shared, and I hope you will take the opportunity to take a look at it, consider it, if you agree, sign and share it, because it is time to acknowledge that the continued and deliberate oppression of people of African ancestry amounts to genocide as to the definition adopted by international laws and charters, it amounts to genocide. The intent to wipe out an entire people is encapsulated in the continued negligence for this racist imbalanced system to continue, to continue eating at our, at our very hearts. So when we're looking at what tips, what, what ways we can move forward, and here I'll take a, a step back and share a little bit of, of the beginning of my journey. Um, I was raised an Arab Muslim girl um, in that order. So even the Muslim aspect of who I am was under the umbrella of the Arab culture. So the, the element of spirituality, in my opinion, the very essence of my faith as a Muslim has been tarnished by a culture that is patriarchal and racist. Um, in discovering or experiencing, and I grew up in Egypt, as I, I, I mentioned, I'm originally from Sudan, but I grew up in Egypt. To clarify, David, I, with the establishment of the Nubia Initiative, it, is, it was, is, and continues to be an effort to connect Nubians on the ground from Egypt and Sudan to the diaspora. And through this work, I realized and learned and continue to learn that we have Nubians in Kenya, Nubians in Tanzania, Nubians in Uganda, Nubians in Ethiopia and uh, in Eritrea. And we held Nubia Fest and there was one of the panel called Nubia Unbound. And it was just really a comparison between Nubians in Egypt, Nubians in Sudan and Nubians in the diaspora. But then our brothers and sisters from Kenya to Indians said, well, we want to be part of this conversation. And once we were live, as we are live, a Ugandan brother, a Nubian brother in Uganda tunes in and says, hey, well, I'm, I'm Nubian in Uganda. Well, can I, can I join this conversation? And he opts in. And even though the connection was really horrible, he typed and responded. And it was just amazing realizing the power that we have and realizing our continuity. And 
more than anything, seeing and coming face to face with the reckoning that this is the truth this system has been so desperately trying to distort. The continuity of our people, the resilience in our continuity as a people, because these sisters in Kenya and that brother in Uganda were sharing some of the practices, whether it's in weddings or mornings or the food that we eat or the clothes that we wear, and they're all the same. So I essentially have family in countries I've never visited. And that recognition was something that I found uh, coming very loud and clear through Africa Week 2020, uh, which I am very, very much looking forward to all of you tuning in and joining and bringing your great work to this um, Afrocentric solution, driven solution-based platform, because ultimately we are there and recognizing we are all the power we need. We, we are recognizing our own enough. We are becoming our own enough. And in doing that, each of us has something to learn. Each of us has something to teach. And we come to learn to teach. And operating on that basis essentially frees us from the kind of dependency um, that we need you know, to get someone with a shiny logo or a big name or, you know, that nice verified tick after their name to amplify our movements. The revolution in Sudan had been going on for three or four months before it caught international recognition. And the only way it caught, like the, the image that triggered that international wave of recognition was an image taken by a Sudani woman, of a Sudani woman, shared by a Sudani woman, amplified by the Sudani people. And then everyone wanted to see. Because I personally stood outside the CNN building here in Washington, D.C. and said, come down. This is March. This is Women's Month. Come down and ask me how the women of Sudan, why the women of Sudan are on the streets and leading this, leading this revolution. No one showed up. But then all of a sudden, it becomes about this image. And then the revolution is, is hijacked and, and portrayed within the lens they wanted portrayed. Our power now is realizing that we have platforms like what you have here at the Ubuntu podcast, where you are amplifying our voice, and then I can take this and amplify it to my network, and then my family can take it and amplify it to theirs, and that this is how it works. We, we cannot keep waiting for institutions and establishment and governments and politicians and former politicians and politicians who realize that they could have done more, but all of a sudden are now coming to the consciousness that they are ready to do more. Now we need to stop having crumbs. Wow. That's so good. Something that um, Dima mentioned that is just striking is that the, the similarities that we also have faced in black lives matter, Los Angeles, which is why we stream everything that we do. We put it out on our own because there's we can't wait for ABC and CNN to come and to get excited and to want to put us on their screens. So before the summer was even happening, we had been in front of Jackie Lacey's office downtown Los Angeles when there were only six people. And when we were yelling at the top of our lungs, like, look what is happening, see what she is doing. And then it took for this summer to happen with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, right? Rashard Brooks. It took all of that to happen 
for national news to come down and see what was actually happening and to see the work that we had been doing. And so we can't wait and we won't wait. And the work is still going to get done six months from now when they forget about it. And that's why we say vote and organize, not, you know, protest, then go to the polls because we're going to do both. Um, And we're going to continue to do both. And I also want to mention the fact that what she's talking about is women putting movements on their backs because that is the true history of our people. Women holding it down for community. And it's completely in contrast to Western patriarchal culture. Um, so I'll say that. And then I'll also say that when she mentioned having family in places that she had never been, I think that's <laughs> just a true characteristic of black culture. I can go to Atlanta and see somebody who looks just like me or not like me and is black and they're going to welcome me, whether I'm going to get chicken wings at the strip club or I'm going to the church, the Baptist church, they're going to welcome me. When I went to Uganda and Rwanda for the first time um, a few years ago, and I'm not East African, but I was walking down the street with one of my other black friends and they started speaking to me in Luganda and I was stuck. And I was also kind of embarrassed that I didn't know the language. Cause I was just like, well, damn, like these are my people, like these are my people and I can't speak their language, our language. And so I would tell them, Oh, I'm sorry. Like I'm American. And they would have this like puzzled look on their face. And I would be like, yeah, I know. Same. Like, yeah, I'm confused too. Um, But it's a characteristic of black culture for you to be able to go somewhere and be treated as family um, based on like your phenotype and just based, I don't know, like the music, I could dance to the music and hang out with people. I was hanging out with youth in Rwanda and like people my age and we had a good time. Right. And that's just a character that I just, that's what I love about black culture. You can go anywhere. I can go to New York and hang out in Harlem and feel like I'm from Harlem. Like I can hang out with people from New York and I don't spend too much time in New York, but I can go there and feel like I'm at home. As And people can do that at Lamarck Park, which is why they love coming to the Crenshaw District, which is why it's important that we keep it black. And then I guess to answer your question, grassroots, why is it so important? Because when no one else wants to tell our stories, we, we have to. So keeping it grassroots, keeping it collective action, group-centered leadership, it comes from our roots as a people. This idea of one leader is it's patriarchal, which is why their there's Western culture is so obsessed with this idea. Oh my gosh, our president, we just got notifications that Joe Biden is officially going to be the president, but like this obsession with this one charismatic leader, that's not who we are at our core. 
at our roots. And so that's why I think grassroots collective action organizing is important. Can I, can I just hop onto that? Because you, you said just a few very, very important points here. Um, on the point of, and it's all connected, this, this sense of family, this sense of feeling that you belong wherever you go as a, as a black person, because you do belong wherever you go as a black person. This, uh, you, the first human <laughs> was a black person on our soil. You, you're just claiming what's yours. And that's what's not really fathomable by people because they don't, they don't know where we get this innate entitlement to our divine right. But it's it goes, audacity. But, it, but you see, my issue with the word audacity and, and the link to hope, but we digress because that's where you <laughs> We'll just put that on the side here for now. But it goes even deeper and, and connecting to what you were talking about, the role of women in, in leading these movements and in, in, in what we're seeing, simply if we're just looking at the countries that handled COVID the way they handled it and, and how women, the countries that are led by women, have the best responses. And it's, it's not to say it's because they're led by women, but it's because the people of that country understand they need to be led by <laughs> women. And that they can, in fact, be led by a woman. And that's what takes us back. And for me personally, when I say our issue at the heart of our issue is not actually racism. For me personally, the heart of the issue is misogyny. Because when they came, what, what allowed, what laid the foundation for racism to happen was the breaking of the community. And to break the community on our soil, in Mama Africa, it is to break the woman. It is to take the child away from the womb. The attacks on our people as people of African ancestry started as an attack on the black woman that is Mother Africa. Because when they came back to the continent, because they remembered the riches that were there. They remembered the comfort that they were living in before they left the continent for whatever reason that they left and before, you know, they changed in genes and, and adaptation and all of that fun stuff. In coming back, they're like, well, there were riches, but they had been so into their environment that they forgot how our society was structured. The very fabric of our society, the smallest unit in our society is the community and not the individual. And so when they came back trying to activate or operate on the level of the individual, they failed because everything revolved around the community and that entire community revolved around the women. And so part of allowing for that lie to happen is taking the child away from the woman by kidnapping our ancestors away from our soil and then perpetuating the lie that we are cutting these cords between child and mother and that there is no family. That is the ultimate lie that they are perpetuating, that you have no family. Those who you were taken from were the ones who sold you. And what was told 
to us on the continent is those who were taken away were the lazy ones who could not serve you. And that's how we as a people have become traumatized into survival mode. And that is our biggest challenge because we're not realizing that our biggest challenge is within. Our biggest challenge is, is that we think we are in survival mode and we think that we cannot trust one another to actually jump off and say, no, 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 we have this. They may want us to believe we don't have this power, but we have it. And though we know it inside our very souls, we are traumatized into survival. So we are traumatized into even taking the, the pause be like, no, we got this. I'm going to jump and they're going to catch me. We have been robbed of that. I think what you both share is uh, just really powerful. Um, Dima, how you talked about the Sudanese revolution, um, and in particular, the role of women in history. Both you and Rajay talked about the role of women in history and how they've been um, the ones that have been, as you said, Rajay, holding it down um, when it comes to, to movements and um, just in African diaspora societies overall. Um, and you guys ended the conversation by talking about leadership. And Rajay, you talked about how Biden has now been announced as the uh, winner of the U.S. presidential election. So we want to go into that and touch on that a bit more. Um, what is the significance of the U.S. election for your constituents, both domestically and or globally? And how should we mobilize afterwards? I guess when I say when I think of significance, the year 2020 is going to is going to go down in history. It's a historic year. Um and I don't want to center Trump. I don't want to center his whiteness here, but I do want to uplift rather Stacey Abrams and black women across the country who overwhelmingly supported Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Yeah, even even if they did not 100 percent agree with their ideologies. During the primaries, there were multiple candidates, Kamala Harris being one of them, um, a black woman running for president. And it was almost like a circus trying to figure out who was going to take it. Joe Biden ended up becoming the Democratic uh, Party's candidate who most people would argue he's a moderate. So for those of us who are, who consider ourselves a little bit farther left, we're not necessarily happy with Joe Biden. And when that happened, there were lots of folks on the interwebs, as I call it, on social media saying, you know what, we just need to rally behind Joe Biden anyway. We need to just vote for Joe Biden. When a lot of black folks were saying, well, hold up. He doesn't necessarily represent our beliefs. He doesn't necessarily represent the promise of what this country could be. He does not want to push back. He did. He said he was not going to defund the police. Right. As a lot of organizers were calling for that. He's not the candidate we want yet. Black people showed up to the polls anyway. In an election where white women who probably posted black squares on Instagram and posted Black Lives Matter or went to a march here or there, showed up more this year than they did in 2016 for Donald Trump. And so I am not here to necessarily 
you know, celebrate the fact that a black woman saved this country from itself and saved white people from their whiteness and white supremacy. But I am here to say that it's about time that this country show black women the respect that they have long deserved. And that I'm not just talking about, you know, in the political sphere, because Stacey Abrams does deserve every good thing that comes to her in the political sphere. But I also say that in other realms, in our community. When I talked about community, um, when I talked about group-centered leadership earlier and how, you know, women are leading movements and, and it comes from history, I'm thinking about Ella Baker, who most people don't know, but who Ella Baker was fundamental with SNCC, Ella Baker was fundamental to the, some of the civil rights that we have today. That's, that's our model. And while I appreciate Dr. King and Malcolm X, Ella Baker is my role model and somebody I hold dear. And so with this election, it's historic. Um, but we also know that half the country voted for a man who is perpetuating genocide on black people and on protesters, and on people who don't agree with him. So what do we do with that? We have this president, right, from the Democratic Party now, who's in office. What do we do moving forward? And as an organizer, my answer is, I'm going to push Joe Biden as far as I can for the sake of justice. Ah, ah, where do we go with this? Um, This is what I mean by crumbs. This is exactly what I mean by crumbs. When you said vote and organize, I'm getting myself in the habit of stopping to interrupt people. So I interrupted you in my head, but I didn't do it out loud. No, it's organize and vote. And I'll tell you why. Because... There was a massive momentum storming the streets of the United States. And I say the United States because it is not America. (laughs) There are two continents that together create America. This country is not it. On that and moving on, there was a massive, massive, massive momentum going on that was hijacked as all our momentums inevitably are. And it is hijacked by two words or, or phrases. And I, I, I put that in my latest rant <laughs> that I, I published and I shared the link there. But these are the two terms that are thrown at activists to shackle and pause everything at least, and it's a process. And every time our people come together and are actually picking up the momentum, because I don't know if, if, I don't know the extent of the awareness of how these protests and uprisings were picking up around the world. But in the case of Sudan, when we were protesting, on the streets, taking, marching to the army headquarters in Khartoum, 
Our Kenyan sisters and brothers took to the streets. Our Ghanaian sisters and brothers took to the streets. Our Algerian sisters and brothers, in the heart of their own revolution, took to the streets. Our, our brothers and sisters in southern Cameroon, while they are undergoing all kinds of genocide there, took to the streets raising our flags. South Africans had a concert in our name here the marches that took place across the states, that is a global movement, right? But as soon as that starts happening, there, there's almost like an inevitable, something that's coming up and saying, that's all great and important, but let's focus on something that is important to all of us. It is for all intents of, and purposes, all life mattering, our movement, right? So when we say black lives matter, on the streets here. And then they say, yes, yes, but for black lives to matter, we need to focus on voting. No, not when the voting enables the fact that I need to still be here and will still be here another four years down the line, marching saying black lives matter, because I was four years ago, marching down the streets saying black lives matter. And so how does this election impact my constituents? considering my constituents are our people and considering that this is a revolution of consciousness that is solely based on the truth, the truth is this election means nothing tangible because the two names, the two faces on this ticket are both contributing, contributors have continued and are currently part <laughs> of the deliberate oppression of people of African ancestry in every single corner, home, house, street, even mind space. This is a continuation of the mental slavery, of the deliberate mental slavery that is it's a psychological warfare inflicted on our people by parading another token black person saying that now that you have this black person, she will save you the same way Obama had the audacity for hope, but also had the audacity not to take Marcus Garvey's name off the list. You know what I mean? So how is it going to affect the constituency? What's our next steps? Our next step is to keep marching because revolutions don't stop. And this is a revolution of consciousness. Fine. You did the, civil, the civic duty voted, made sure Trump is out, though that kind of cancer doesn't leave just like that. Um, now, refocus, and it's so important to refocus and understand that this system and anyone accepting to be part of it as it currently is, cannot uplift us. It is not designed to uplift. It is designed to keep us shackled. And this is what I mean. We have to learn from one another because you have the revolution in Sudan from the 6th of April until mid-August when the facade power sharing agreement took place. Everyone was like, power to the people, power to the people, power to the people. Yeah. And then you have this power share sharing agreement where you have a civilian prime minister essentially handpicked to share a sovereign power where currently, as we speak, the president and vice president of said sovereign council are two of the orchestrators 
and the vice president specifically, is the director of the Janjaweed, which orchestrated the Darfur genocide and is responsible for the murder and massacre and slaughter of over 300,000 Darfuris as we speak. And somehow, somehow, we have people here telling the U.S. it's okay to delist Sudan from the state sponsoring terrorism list when we have a vice president as a genocidal terrorist because they said it was a process, because they said, hey, at least you have a civilian prime minister. And if I contextualize this with, within what's happening here in the U.S., at least there's a black vice president, at least it's not Trump, and it's a process to try and take this. The only process that matters is our recognition that we are our own enough as people of African ancestry, and we need to, we, need, we must close ranks. We cannot keep demanding from our oppressors to acknowledge that we have been oppressed. It's why this petition started, because it is part and parcel of the double standards and the facade of this international community. It's not a community. The facade of calling it a community is contributing to the psychological warfare. It's an international arena. They are watchers. They are watching us get killed. They are watching us be oppressed. They are watching us lie to ourselves, believing that if we march and maybe get one or two countries or governments on our side, that this will actually change anything. The only time this actually changes is us recognizing that we hold the power, we as people. That's when they start coming to you and asking, what do you want? Because it wasn't until the 30th of June, after the massacre, please, please, please take time and look at June 3rd, the massacre in Sudan, hashtag Sudan massacre. Understand that they dispersed violently a peaceful protest to scare us. But on the 30th of June, some number like 40 million people took to the streets. 40 million Sudanese took to the streets. They can't shut that down. That's when they came and said, okay, we really need to reach an agreement here because this thing is getting out of hand. What I'm saying is, let it get out of hand. We keep marching. I think, so while Damon's speaking on a global level, which I agree with, it's can't use the master's tools to tear down the system, right? Like, I understand that. Um, and I understand that a true revolution needs to take place in order to dismantle these systems. But I also am very aware of the severity of what could happen if we chose not to engage. And so on a local level, Los Angeles district attorney, she spoke yesterday because she conceded, but a black woman, Jackie Lacey, um, made history by being the first black person and woman uh, district attorney in Los Angeles. And so she was once celebrated. Um, She's been in office since 2012. The second time she ran, she ran unopposed. Um, And this goes back to the point that Dima mentioned earlier on, understanding the power within, because a lot of folks, me included, voted for her the second time. She was the only person on the ballot. She was a Black woman, of course. Get her in, right? Not understanding that she is one of the most corrupt and murderous DAs in the United States. And I'm not just talking about California in the entire United States. And this goes back to this twisted idea, this twisted belief that California is so progressive and that Los Angeles is a model 
And so this particular election was huge, I think, for Black Los Angeles because we had to really deal with this cognitive dissonance that we were fighting against a Black woman to get her out of office. Not only did we do that, but this Measure J and (laughs) voting against Prop 25. And I'll give like a really brief description of both. Measure J, what the authors of that bill are not calling a defund the police bill is actually a defund the police bill. Because what we're saying and what has just been passed is that money, which is tangible, it's capitalistic, it's transactional money. The love of money is the root of all evil. As a Christian, that's what I believe. But it's also the current system. We use money right now. And because we use money right now, we know that money needs to be transferred elsewhere and needs to come out of the hands of the police. And so with Measure J, we were able to pass and to affirm that millions of dollars would be reallocated to alternatives of incarceration. That's one. Prop 25. A few years ago, we passed SB 10, I believe, which would end the cash money bail system. Because we know that for a lot of folks who are poor, being poor and black is worse than being white and guilty because you don't have the money to get out, right? We see the story with Khalif Browder, how he was sentenced. He wasn't even sentenced, but he received a death sentence essentially by being locked up without even seeing a judge. So this is what happens to our people in prison. And so a few years ago, we passed no cash bail. Great. So now it's time to replace it with something. And so the authors of Prop 25 wanted to replace it with algorithms, replace cash bail with algorithms. A judge would be able to determine whether or not a person would receive bail. But what we realized is that a lot of these algorithms are racist. So we would be essentially replacing cash bail, a racist system, a classist system with yet another racist and classist system. But Folks are telling us we need to replace cash bail. We need to replace cash bail. Like you need to vote yes on Prop 25. But what we had to do was do severe political education to say, no, we can't replace one bad system with another bad system. And so this election, I think, was huge because as black people, we had to understand what was on the ballot and really deal with the cognitive dissonance, like I said earlier. Man, I mean, there has been so much wisdom, passion, commitment to our communities that has been evident on this conversation. I just want to really honor and acknowledge what both of you have brought into into this podcast with your experience and with your really thought provoking answers. And I want to really be able to I'm honored to be able to ask you all the last question. Um, This is a question we ask to all of our Ubuntu podcast guests, our new family. (laughs) Um, If there was one thing that you could say to every African diaspora member right now, what would that be? Wake up every morning and look yourself in that mirror and repeat 
We are Africa rising. Take a moment to understand the weight of that phrase, the responsibility that comes with it, and take one pledge to embody that phrase one way or another. It does not matter how. If it means you're picking up a phone and checking on your grandmother or your great aunt or someone on the other side of the world or you're going to dedicate some time to learn about something somewhere else happening to our people and share it and share it recognize that we are africa rising recognize that our people are coming together recognize that our ancestors are coming together recognize that they're recognizing that this is happening and that there's no stopping it and please 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 reach out reach hashtag reach out fam seriously seriously any way we can amplify what you're doing remember this anything you are doing for the collective anything you are doing that is not just for you there is zero need for you to do it alone it is counterproductive for you to do it alone so find people who will help you do it tag at for black power b l k p w r tag that to whatever you are doing as long as you are working towards the advancement of people of african ancestry tag at for black power number 4 b l k p w r and let us amplify it and let us come together and remember that the 22nd of november is the global day of action come up with something whether it's a podcast it's a show it's a rally it's a visual it's whatever it is you can do you can offer this family if it's making them laugh if it's making them smile if it's making them sing if it's making them dance whatever it is the 22nd of november do something and ha- and tag for black power because we are africa rising this is a global black lives movement and it's a revolution of consciousness so When words fail me, I often rely on words that have already been spoken by ancestors. And so in the words of Mrs. Fanny Lou Hamer, just one line that says, "We have to build our own power." And whether that's economically through businesses starting your own black business or supporting black businesses, whether that's you know, mutual aid and helping those around you those who are not around you stepping outside yourself right sacrificing um we have to build our own power we cannot rely on someone to give it to us we cannot um ask for it we are past asking um sometimes i might even say we're past demanding that we have to just seize it ourselves right like we have to seize it build our own right like we don't need anything from anyone and so um we have to build our own power and so plug in get involved in an organization that's doing the work that speaks to your heart and that um is building right so whether that's a black lives matter chapter or um you're getting involved into like anti-incarceration stuff whether you were trying to do policy whether you're 
if you don't want to do policy, if you're not interested in this political madness, right, there's something that you can do to build the power of your people. And so I would encourage you to find ways to do that and to get involved. Um, so that those are the words that I would say, relying on our ancestor, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer. Wow. Uh, Raji and Dima, thank you both so, so much for this conversation. Uh, it was just so enlightening and, and so en- enriching. There was just a depth uh, to, to the conversation that, you know, um, I'll be reflecting on for a long time and I hope our listeners will will as well. And, you know, those, those last couple of thoughts that you both shared around, you know, looking at yourself, you know, in the mirror and really holding yourself to account, right? Like, am I doing what I can in the sphere of influence that I have currently to further this cause? And, and, and as you said, Raji, how am I contributing to, you know, really that, that concept or that idea of building within, right. Um, and building within your own, your own power and the resources that you have. Um, and so I just want to thank you both so much for, for this conversation, um, for taking the time to, to, uh, really just share your wisdom and your experiences and your, your hopes, your angst, your pain, your dreams with us, because, you know, what we are, part of what we're trying to do, part of it is amplifying voices like both of yours. And through that amplification, hoping, right, that people can start to, to think, people can start to um, deconstruct, people can start to question certain things and within themselves and within their environment in an effort to better themselves and thereby their environment. It's really the hope and mission of us um, at Ubuntu. So just, you know, thank you both so much. You know, really loved having you both on here. And thank you. Thank you for this platform. Absolutely. Thank you for your brilliance, for your ingenuity, for your just listening to the call to have something like this and just for doing it um, and having us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm honored to actually just be in community with you all for a few hours. So thank you. Same, 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 same. Thank you. Blessings to each and every one of you. Please keep the conversation going. Please host one of these conversations at Africa Week 2020. David, I will scold you later for missing the September one. <laughs> we'll just discuss that on the side. I really, really appreciate the space that you are creating. And I hope um, you'll be shedding more light, specifically with what's happening at the Horn right now. Um, Absolutely. We are looking at a potential war breaking out. We are. And we are. It's, it's not, it's not, we're not just looking at. Uh, at the West or at China, we are looking at Africans being involved in in our very own demise. And here I mean the Egyptians. So please, please track what the Arabs are doing on the continent. Yeah. Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed this topic. Thank you again to our great host for what's been a really spectacular episode. I've learned a lot personally, and I want to encourage all of you guys to keep this conversation going. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. Please check out the links and be tuned in for part two. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, take care.